And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In these very, very divided political times, Senator Joe Donnelly is an aberration. He's uh, a moderate known to work across party lines in the United States Senate. That has enraged some within his own party, the Democratic Party. But as a Democratic senator from the Republican state of Indiana, a state Donald Trump carried by 19 points, he's also a prime target for Republicans in 2018. Yet Donnelly has shown a facility for winning very tough, close political scraps in his home state, uh, in part because he's kind of a regular Joe, as you'll hear in this conversation. Senator Joe Donnelly, it's great to be with you as always. Thanks so much for having me with you today. Yeah. We, uh, we come from the same neck of the woods. Uh, I grew up in New York, and I know you grew up uh, just north uh, of New York. I also I talk about this often. I'm the son of an Im- immigrant. Your grandparents uh, were immigrants. My grandparents came over on the boat to, um, to Ellis Island, and we, uh, we found my grandmother's passage documents in the files, and uh, um, it had assets, $10. And uh, she'd be surprised if she knew that would get her only a cup of coffee and a sandwich today. <laughs> <laughs> did you, uh, and they settled it on, uh, as many immigrants did, on the Lower East Side of, of uh, Manhattan? They did. We laughed as a family. We said, um, where was the furthest you could go uh, on the bus? And I think that was the answer is what yeah. it was. And that was pretty much um, actually like an Irish enclave. And it's my, Al Smith territory, right? Yeah. yeah, and and I actually know the uh, uh, the grandson of of Al Smith, who's a wonderful guy. And um, my mom and dad actually grew up in the same block. Oh, is that right? Yes, yeah, in that neighborhood. And, but they didn't like a lot of folks. They 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 migrated to the suburb. Right, they did. They um, uh, they eventually. I was the fifth of five, and so. Um, as the family got bigger, they kept moving from from a small apartment to a little bit bigger apartment to uh, to a like a bungalow house. And then when I came along, there was absolutely no room left. So then they moved out to uh, to the suburbs. And Catholicism, it, it's always been a big part of of our lives. Um, it's always been part of our tradition. Um, you know, it, it is my faith and. Uh, uh, I have a strong belief in it, and it's uh, it's always been a comfort during during all parts of our life. But uh, I remember I was an altar boy, and I was what like all of about nine years old, and the prayers were still in Latin at the time. And I remember uh, they said, "Well, you have to you have to do all of this in Latin." And the only thing I knew was how to get to third base at that point. <laughs> and so I remember. Uh, in the masses, well, on a baseball field. On a baseball field, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I never got there any other way. <laughs> but um, Certainly not at the age of nine. No, <laughs> I didn't even know where third base was then in those <laughs> days. Um, but I remember, uh, you know, mass would be at six in the morning, and you'd be an altar boy at six in the morning. And so me and my brother would, would serve together. And I go, do you know any of the Latin? He go, no. He said, do you? I said, no. So we go and mumble, and they thought we were saying Latin. <laughs> so when uh, you suffered a, a painful, sort of indescribable, indescribable loss when 
when you were 10. I speak as someone who lost a parent uh, as a yeah. teenager uh, myself, but uh, you lost your mom when you yeah, were 10 I years old. I did, 10 years old, to breast cancer. And it was at a time that, you know, things things were just weren't discussed. Um, and I knew my mom was sick, but it was never talked about as to, to what it was or, or anything like that. And I remember um, in the town I grew up in, you, you, the hospital there, and they still had rules that kids couldn't come up. And I remember my mom in the hospital, and, and we'd stand in the parking lot mm-hmm. and wave at her in the window. And um, then she came home, and I didn't realize that she came home, I think, because, and it was never, still to this day, I'm not sure, but I think she came home because they probably said, you know, there's not much we can do at this point. And I had no idea. And we lost her on Easter Sunday. Hmm. And what, what, uh, what was that like for a oh, 10-year-old boy? It's like the end of the world. Um, because my dad, my dad would get up in the dark, go to work and come home in the dark. And, and you know, was, uh, was kind of like... He was the dad who, who when he spoke once a week, would, uh, <laughs> would tell you to clean your room, you know? And so you spent most of your time with your mom. And um, the biggest fear was, what happens if something happens to my dad now? Because yeah. you sit there, you look, and you go, I'm 10 years old. If he's gone, then what? Yeah. But of course, you know, we had a big family of cousins and all of that stuff. But that's not how you think as a 10-year-old boy. You think... What happens next? Were you? I mean, did they? Did you? Did you know that she might die? Did no. anybody discuss that? No. Um, you know, I think my dad was trying to deal with it in his own way, and uh, so so it was it was just like getting hit with a two by four out of the blue. I knew she wasn't feeling good, but she hadn't been feeling good for a while, and um, y- y- there was no thought that that might happen. And I look at it now, and I think of things like the NIH, which we can talk about later, and others, mm-hmm. where you look and you go, if it was today, she probably would have been fine. Right. But this is 1966. Yeah. And so I'm sure the things they know today, they didn't know then. And um, you, you, you spend every day thinking, gosh, I hope nothing happens to my dad. Because yeah. then what? And know? how did he adjust? Because now he's a single parent with... Uh, I, some of your siblings may have been out of the house. Oh, they him. were. Yeah. I was the fifth of five. Right. So I was the youngest. And then my brother, um, who's a couple of years older, and, and one of my sisters was still home, but the other two were, were off living their life. And, and so, uh, so it was just him. And we always laugh. We said, basically, he sat us down and said, if any of you get in trouble, I'll kill you. So we all behaved. <laughs> uh-huh. That's an approach. That's one approach. Yeah. yeah. But it was, you know. What was, did your dad do? Um, he ran a small business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as, and, and so he had, he had to make sure that that, that worked as well. And, you know, as, as hard as it was on us, obviously, this is his spouse. And so it was a... You know, my yeah. uh, wife uh, had breast cancer when my kids were relatively oh, small. I didn't know that. And um, uh, I, I, I remember when 
uh, once I got over the shock when she went to the doctor, we got the news, uh, thinking about uh, how we would survive, how we would go on if something happened to her right. because she was so integral like the hub of the family. It was, and it was terrifying. Revolved it, it was terrifying. Right. So I, yeah. I identify with your, your, your dad. It must have been It, it was uh, a really tough. quiet time. And I, I don't know a better word to describe it that, uh, you know, everybody was almost shell-shocked. And so for years, you, you know, we used to we, – we laughed afterwards, but at the time not so much that, uh, you know, every other week we'd say a few words to each other because everybody kind of had their lanes. You know, my yeah. dad would go to work and take care of everything, and we'd go to school and and study and play baseball and that kind of stuff. Um, but it, it was never – ever talked about again you know and that's not in a mean way it was it was such a heartbreak and you know folks back in those days it's like those who came back from the service Um, and that's when my dad was a world war ii guy that you just don't talk about stuff you deal with it and try to make sure you take care of your family and and that everybody does okay did did did, uh your faith have any was it a source of of comfort at the it, time it was and and here's the interesting thing david and again like i said my dad was a he was a hard worker and a um he was a quiet guy um except when he'd get mad um then he was not so quiet but um y- you know he he didn't tell it to me but i heard it from one of his friends his his peers where uh, the guy said to me you know what your dad told me once i said what was that he goes he said if he didn't have his faith, he never could have gone on because he said there would have been no reason to believe that anything would have gotten better. Hmm. So I, and I was just like blown away by that. Yeah. You, you know, because we're in our own little world of China, trying to make sure we, uh, we get our tests done and this and that. And, and uh, he, he had a very, very, very deep faith. Um, and, and what we would always laugh about is I asked him one time, I said, so tell me, you're trying to get us all set up to go to the nine o'clock mass on time. So he's trying to get everybody out of the house and it would always be, um, you know, like a screaming fest that we're going to be late. We're going to be this, we're going to be that. I said, so if we're going to church to try to tell each other how much we love one another, and we spend the hour before killing each other, (laughs) getting there, I said, how does that add up? He goes, don't be a wise guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, the other sort of secular uh, religion that you you mentioned that you you touched on it that you apparently found some solace in is baseball. Oh, love the game. Yeah, Mickey Mantle fan from from day one. All you guys who went north <laughs> became Yankees fans. I, I grew up uh, a Mets fan. You know, yeah. you either you either love the Yankees or you hate the Yankees. So, well, uh, one of the funny stories we had when I was when I was younger and my mom was still around was um, my dad got two tickets to the World Series, and it was the Yanks against the Pirates or the Reds, and apparently he and my mom had a big powwow of what do we do? We have two boys who love baseball, and and two tickets, and so they told me that uh, no. No one under the age of six was allowed in the stadium, <laughs> <laughs> which, which being gullible as I have been my entire life, 
I said, oh, okay. And then I'm sitting there watching the game with my mom, and this little kid goes walking by. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I turned to her and said, you lied. <laughs> and she said, I then waited in the driveway for an hour for them to come home so I could tell my father that, in fact, kids under the age of six were allowed in the park. And he's like, yeah, I know. I had two tickets. Live with it. <laughs> Sounds like a, he sounds like a pretty blunt guy. He was. A great guy. Yeah. Great guy. But you played the game. I did. I played right through, um, through high school and then um, went to Notre Dame. What I, position did you play? Um, first base. Uh-huh. Left-handed. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, your options are li- – I actually loved shortstop the most. Yeah, but not a was, lot of left-handed no, shortstops. No, that yeah. was back in the days when the coaches would go, well, you can't be the shortstop because you're left-handed. And it's like, yeah, but I can catch the ball and throw the ball. It's like, well – we don't do it that way. <laughs> they never tell you why, but they just don't <laughs> do it that way. And so I went to Notre Dame, and in a retrospect, uh, you know, one of, one of the regrets I have, I wish I had tried out, but you're so focused on I don't want to flunk out that, you know, the last thing you want to do is is come home in disgrace having flunked out of school. Was so. there any question that you were going to go to Notre Dame? Is, is that was always a goal for you? Uh, you know, it was never even thought of that it was possible. Um, and what I mean by that was we were just middle-class kids, and my brother was the first one in our family who ever went to college. Um, you know, my, my sisters, um, who I give all the credit in the world to, um, my oldest sister, after having gotten married, um, then went back, having gotten married and had four kids, then went back and went to college and then went to Villanova Law School. Um, as well as being a nurse. And so she went to college afterwards, um, and my other sister is a nurse, and my other sister had a great career too. Um, But my brother was the first one to ever go to college, and he was two years older than me. And so it had not been part of our family experience, and Notre Dame was like this. So how did it all come about that you went? Well, I had wanted to go to college, and you know, I never figured I'd I have a shot at Notre Dame. It's one of those things you look at and you go, ah, I can't get in. But it's worth the $25. So I applied and, and got in. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. And on the letter was, you know, the money has to be in by a certain date. You have to keep your grades up and all that stuff. And my father, like, sat down and wrote the check. And again, Without I think question. It was, I think no it was question. $25. Um and said, we're going down now. We don't want them to change their mind before they get the check. <laughs> He's like, once – he goes, look, I run a business. Once they cash it, they're in. They can't get out of the deal. Um, and, and, and how and, – and you, you came to South Bend. You went to, to Notre Dame, and you never left. Never left. I was um, – it, it's – you know, I was lucky to live in a wonderful place growing up. And then to to find a wonderful wonderful place to live in, and and um, I met my wife in college, who was from South Bend, um, and you know we both loved it there, and and it was a perfect fit, and and I had so many friends. You know, I started again um, after college playing ball all over Northern Indiana, so we traveled all over. You know, you, you know Gary, Indiana, not too far from yeah. here where we are right now. We play the Steel City Giants, you know, and, and teams like that all over northern Indiana. And how long did you keep that up? Oh, um, I played ball for a couple of years, two, three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked for a year and then went to law school. And mm-hmm. so um, I figured I actually better, like, 
do something that could create money coming in as opposed to uh, money you going out. You, you were not making Mickey Mantle money. Huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> Me and the curveball never got along very well. <laughs> so you, uh, you, you went into the practice of law. What kind of law did you? It was just general practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, pretty much uh, across the board, we represented some small companies and, and different things and, and practiced um, for a while. And then uh, my dad had a like I said, he had a small business, and they they had a portion of it out here in the Midwest, and so I helped with that for a while. Yeah. Now you, uh, you 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 came to politics sort of through the the back door, the legal channel, right? You right. you helped out a friend, Tom Ward. Uh, I and- did a great guy who um, had no chance to win in 1986, and I had actually not been involved. We were raising the kids and all of that, and. Um, He's a fellow Notre Dame grad and was basically not supposed to have any chance to win. And and, and so I, I, I said, you know, the, 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 quote, machine and all of this, like everybody had left him on a corner and no bus was coming along mm-hmm. to pick him up. And I said, you know, I should help this guy. And so I did. And we we came we lost the election by 47 votes yeah, in Congress. We, we were supposed to have no chance to win. And you could kind of feel a, feel like the wind, as you know, starting to pick up. And at, on election night, we were ahead. And, and the next morning, we were not. But it was so close that, um, that there was a recount. And I knew how, how well off we were in the treasury of the campaign, which meant we had nothing. And... Uh, I said, I don't know if that means that that's what my legal talents are worth, but I will be, you know, we'll help with your attorney's case. It was a six-week uh, six process, the recount. We started down 167, um, wound up 47 votes short. Yeah, and, it's hard. Uh, People don't realize how hard it is uh, to, I mean, generally the counts are pretty accurate. Right. People don't realize that, that, that the counts are accurate. You know, all these stories you hear about this voter fraud and that voter fraud— so absolutely nothing like that. And and in almost every case, we haven't. That if there was something wrong, it was simply that, um, you know, one got stuck to another in terms of the cards. Or everybody counted and their count was off by 10 and mm-hmm. everybody signed off on it. And so we went through everything and got it down to um, 47 and we knew we had one precinct left. And after that... Um, I was the one who had to give him the call and say, you know, we we've time, run time to, we've run out of ground here. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. three outs in the ninth. Right, and he was so, incredibly gracious about it. Yeah, it wasn't uh, John Bradamus that was uh, his seat. Yeah, John Bradamus was a, a a kind of giant figure in the Congress from South Bend. Did you know him? I did. Um, he went he, on to be president of NYU. He went on NYU, to be president right? of NYU and and. In many ways, changed it from a commuter school to an international powerhouse, just because of the power of his personality, his intellect. Um, I remember in 2006 when I was running for the House, and, and he was still a god back home, mm-hmm. that um, he came out and we were talking about he, – he was our hook, in effect, to have a fundraiser that we could get a lot of people at mm-hmm. because everybody loved him. And he wanted to come out and say hello to his family anyhow, who, who many of them were still out there. And I said, tell me what you're going to speak about. And, and you know, it's a, it's a moderate district. 
And he's like, oh, we're just going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, education and how things are going in the country. And I said, oh, that sounds great. And then he got up and gave a barn burner stem winder against, uh, you know, the president. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and yeah. and he, he sat down, he looked at me and smiled and he goes, Sorry about that, and then uh, had his ham and eggs. But it's it, a moderate district. Yeah, uh, yeah. It became a moderate. District. He was quite, quite progressive. He was, he was a, 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 a kind of an extraordinary guy. And I would visit him at NYU every year, um, just to touch base with him, out of respect for him. Um, it's just a giant. Yeah. And, and um, toward the end, um, he started to suffer a little dementia, uh-huh. but he was there every day. And the people who work for him um, were so – loved him so much. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was it was an amazing thing. I would, I would come by and spend time with him. And, uh, you know, he'd always say, it's always so great to see you here. I said, look, we're here. We're on your shoulders. And, and as you well know, that's how so much of this is built is on each other's shoulders. Although, you know, the shoulders seemed broader back then somehow. I, you know, I think back to that era – and Bradamus was one of uh, many sort of giant figures in the Congress on both in both the House and the Senate. And you don't you don't see I, I, maybe it's just that you through the hazy gauze of, of recollection, people become bigger than life. But I think that guys like Bradamus and there were mostly guys back then, yeah. but um, were larger than life even then. Well, I think of Senator Birch Bayh from my state, yeah. who um, who is the father of Title IX. The mm-hmm. wisdom of that, of of being smart enough to put that together, and then the Twenty Fifth Amendment um, as well. Yeah, that one of the great things they had back then was Birch Bayh would have the ability to sit down with everybody else in the Senate. And just say, what do you think about this? And instead of attacks starting, they go, well, why don't we tweak this part? Why don't we tweak this part? How about this? How can I make it stronger? And so it was never an us against them. It was, how do we make this so it works for all the, all the young girls in our country to have an equal chance? Title IX. Title IX. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Senator Joe Donnelly. You know, you mentioned Birch Bayh. I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune in 1980 when he ran his last campaign for the Senate. And I spent a couple of days. He was running against Dan Quayle, who would become vice president of the United States. And um, I spent a couple of days with him uh, campaigning through the state. And he had, um, you know, he's a pretty sophisticated guy, uh, but never really, uh, but, but really identified with Indiana. He had a shotgun in his trunk and for turkey shoots right he had a he had a horseshoe in his trunk for pitching and uh (laughs) when if he saw people playing horseshoes along the side of the road he'd stop the car and he'd grab his horseshoe right uh and he was and he was incredibly good and i suspected that that horseshoe was magnetized i never (laughs) never checked it out but he would make these great populist yeah Speeches. I remember him talking about trade, and he said, "I just boils down to a simple principle to me: if if we can't sell in Tokyo, they can't sell in Kokomo." And Amen. you know, people responded. Uh, they responded to that, but and I said, "This guy cannot lose. He's he's the one of 
you know, and uh, he got swept away as most of the major Democratic progressive giants of the Senate did, or many of them, in 1980 when Ronald Reagan got elected. What he always understood was the people of our state who are incredibly kind and hardworking and are focused on the basics of faith and family and country. And that's what Birch always tried to represent, and that's that's what's important um, to everybody back home. When we, when we look at uh, my home state uh, of Indiana— you look at folks who know David more than almost anything that if mom and dad have a good job, everything can work. And, and that's why when you talk about um, if, if we can't sell in Tokyo, they can't sell in Kokomo, all we want is fair and, and the chance to compete on a fair playing field. And that's kind of ingrained into who we are as Hoosiers is that we'll give it everything we have, um, what we expect in return is is to have is to have the rules the same for everybody. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to yeah. want to talk about that. I, I yeah. just want I don't want to lose the thread of no, your no. of your own story. Uh, so uh, you ran for attorney general. Bad idea. In 1988, <laughs> after your experience yeah. with Tom Ward, you ran for the state senate uh, uh, in '90. You ran for Congress in 2004. All losing campaigns. What about no? Didn't you understand? Well. Um, my wife will tell you that I am the guy who, when he sees a parade and sees a line of stuff, will go, there's a pony ahead. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, after after 90... Um, everybody I, everybody I, who's listening can figure out what stuff th- means. That's right. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I just went... I said, you know what? Um, I want to I want to f- make sure I take care of my family and focus on that. And so... And, and said, I'll be more than happy to help others. Um, but that's not for me. But why, 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 why were you so persistent in running for public office? Well, you know, when I, when I uh, graduated from college in 77, um, later on, one of the things I, I missed and wished I had done was to serve in the military. I looked and I said, you know, I owe something to this country who took in my grandparents, who my dad was in the CCCs because the family had so little that um, he he went out west to build bridges. And Civilian all conservation, sorry, of course. Yeah, 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 from the New Deal. From yeah. the New Deal yeah. that um, uh, he was sent out to, uh, out to the west to build bridges and do all of those kind of things. And his paycheck was sent back to his mom to help take care of the rest of the kids. And uh, he, he laughed. He said, you know, I... I asked where my paycheck was, and they said, son, you're never going to see your paycheck. <laughs> and, and so it was given to his mom to help take care of the family. And so, and, and he then served in the Navy in World War II. Um, my Uncle Tom uh, served in the Army, in, in Patton's Army, was wounded. Um, and I felt, you know, I owe something to my country. And, and so I took a shot, and then in 1990 I figured, you know, um, it, that's not to be so I'll do the best I can for my town and my community, raise my family. And so I spent the next, what, 14 years or so um, it, working hard, coaching baseball, uh, working with our schools and, and similar type things to try to make for a better town. 
And then uh, you ran in 2004. And the unique thing about that was um, I had no intention of doing that. I was, uh, I was actually, the way that came about is I had been on the, the school board back home uh, for some years. I had, uh, it was one of those things where you get a call at your house and they said, hey, you're on the school board. And it's like, no, I'm not a candidate for the school board. You obviously have the wrong person. And they said, no, 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 you know, so-and-so um, decided that they're, gonna, that they're getting off, and, and we thought you could help. And I said, well, it, this is for the Catholic High School School Board. And I was like, well, um, you know, I don't know. And then they said, well, then you have to tell a bishop no. And it's like, all right, I'm on the board. <laughs> they said, that's your job. And I'm like, all right, I'm in. And uh, um, I got a call in 2000, near the end of 2003, um, from some of the local Democrats. And, and I figured it was, you know, back then the, the numbers were a little different, but you'd contribute $100 to this candidate or to that mm-hmm. candidate. And, and I had been out fishing. That sounds quaint. Yes, it does, doesn't yeah. it? I had been out fishing and uh, came back and was going to the store and got a call. And, and my daughter said, hey, you got a call from, from your friend. And I said, oh, all right. You know, I figured they need $100 for Ned who's running for sheriff type thing. And they said, we, we think you'd be a, a great congressional candidate. And I said, that's a tough run. I said, you know, I kind of turned the page on that and trying to do my thing here. And they said, well, think about it. And, and um, so we ran, and we were supposed to have no chance at all and, and came close, came close to winning. And I knew back then the way the numbers worked, and you've always been a numbers guy, that uh, – in those days, in the off year, Democrats always did better. This was during a presidential, mm-hmm. and in the off year, because Democrats Indiana always do better. tilted uh, Republican, in right? The, in so the everybody would want to come out and mm-hmm. vote for president, and and in the off years, usually Democrats would pick up about five points, and we knew the next one would be in the off year. And, just, and you looked and said, you know, one or two things change. You could win, and and it wasn't just and, to win, though. It was, you know, when I asked, when I sat down with my family and said, "What do you think?" and they're all like, "Ah, oh, you know, we've got a we've got a great life. We love our country, but this is this, you know, the fellow you're running against is worth seventy five million dollars. Um, you know, and the, the joke we had was between my opponent and I, Chris Chakla, yeah. Chakula, who's now runs the club for growth. He, he had. He's, oh, I guess he's, he's not there he's, anymore. Yeah. Now. Um, but we, we laughed. We said between our opponent and I, um, we're both you know put us together. We're worth seventy five million dollars. <laughs> Unfortunately, all of it is his. <laughs> but um, you know, to to decide to do that, I was like, look, I don't want to run just to run. Um, that's that's not who we are. It, it does it do anything for the country? And we were really concerned about Iraq. It was that time, as was uh, a lot of. Yeah. Uh, a lot of your na- neighbors. I mean, that was a, it. Became a way of election. Did now yeah. uh, Rahm Emanuel was running the D Triple C. He, he was at the time. Did he? Uh, did he come and put his signature <laughs> thumb on you? Rahm is Rahm is uh, someone I've known for a long time, and uh, he, he. You know, we, at that point we looked and we said, you know, I think the numbers do work, and we can make a difference. We can try to because. Our, our state as a state per capita has the largest national guard. So we have more kids going off per capita than any other state. Um, 
we have an incredible service uh, dedication. And I wanted to make sure that um, anything we were doing was being done in the right way. And I said, you know, I'll give it a shot. And and, and Ram said uh, in his own unique way, he said, look, when you have a, a poll that shows you ahead, give me a call. I said, all right, we'll just do our thing. And um, that summer of 06, um, I, I called him. And I, this is like in July. Um, and we'd seen no help. Nobody had come in, which was fine. I was more than happy to just keep plugging along, stay under the radar, do the best we could. Um, and we got a poll that showed we were 10 points ahead in July of 06. So I called up Ram and I said, hey, you told me, you know, uh-huh. to give you a call when we had a poll that showed we were doing well. I said, here's where we are. We're 10 points ahead. And he goes, well, listen, you know, that means you're in the ball game. That that if you're that close, things are breaking a certain way, that this is something we're going to have to keep an eye on. I said, I don't think you heard me. I, I'm not 10 points behind. I'm 10 points ahead. And then he loved me much more. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that makes one very attractive. Yeah. If you're talking to the head of the the uh, D Triple C, do you um, and and you served there uh, until you went to the Senate, and you served in the first. I know um, uh, we got to know you a little in in 2008 right. during the Obama campaign. Uh, my wife Susan walked precincts with you in uh, in South Bend uh, for. Obama, um, tell me about uh, what it was like to serve during that period of time, 2009, 2010. You know, everybody feels um, that they serve the best congressional district in the country, and that's certainly how I felt about about my friends and neighbors. And and one thing I do want to mention is that is that working with your wife was such a great experience that uh, her only question ever was was how can we be of help. And it w- it was great fun, and, and, she, and she poured herself into. And it. at first, we we didn't know uh, that it was your wife, and and she's a terrific volunteer. And somebody said, "Wow, she's doing great. How do we make sure she comes in tomorrow?" And I was like, "Just make sure we have you know plenty of rich crackers and <laughs> soda and this and that." And then I realized that that was probably not the draw. <laughs> but um, serving the people of of my community. They're such good people, and they don't. We don't do the Democrat Republican stuff. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm 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 proud to be part of the Democratic Party, uh, but I'm really proud to be a Hoosier and an American. And what I mean by that is, folks' main concern is: Does everybody have a good job? Does everybody have uh, a chance to see their kids go to a good school? Will every kid have a chance at decent health care? And that was always the focus of, of the congressional district I had. And you talked about the 09-010 period. It was um, breathtaking in the pain that it caused because that was the time of the economic collapse. And we're a manufacturing community um, in many ways. My congressional district was in Elkhart. We built RVs, and we still do, uh, RV capital of the world. We do a lot of other manufacturing throughout. And in the southern tier, um, we built Chrysler Transmissions, over 5,000 people. Uh, 
And when the economic implosion hit, at the time, the RV industry had three primary financers. All of them left within a couple of weeks. And so you have an entire industry looking and there's no money for inventory. There's no money to buy parts. There's no money to put vehicles on the lots. And everybody looks at each other and says, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are coming into work. And all of the, all of the Wall Street banks have collapsed. And in effect, our financial pipeline's been turned off. And so one of the most painful things was the, the, the awful conduct of Wall Street really gave Main Street the punch in the face is what happened. And in the southern part where our Chrysler transmission plant was, just the best people in the world you'd ever want to meet. Um, they, they literally... Um, every time I'd be down there, would be having a fundraiser for someone else in the community who had a challenge on this or on that, and and looked up, and the plant of over five thousand people was down to a hundred, to a hundred. So that's like forty nine hundred people who are wondering how am I going to pay my mortgage on my house? How am I going to take care of my kids? How am I going to make sure we don't have economic collapse? And at the same time, David, those same people are digging in their pockets for a buck or two to help whoever was in the toughest spot at that time. It was one of the most inspirational things you could ever see, that you go down and, and, you, and they go, hey, Jimmy's really in a tight spot, and everybody would pitch in. You, uh, you cast some uh, difficult votes at the time. I, I was uh, in the White House at the time. We asked you to cast uh, some difficult votes. One of them was for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, which was uh, then and now a, a, a fraught debate. You know, you, you can say there are Republicans and there are Democrats, but there's a great polarization in our politics, and uh, there was a lot of polarization around that issue. Uh, why was that vote such a tough vote, and, um, and, and how, how hard was it to cast? Well, it was a tough vote, um in this respect, that trying to explain potential benefits is not always is not always the easiest thing to do, and trying to let folks know well um, if this if this goes through you 'll still have this if this doesn 't go through you won 't have this sometimes telling people about um, well, you have this benefit, but it 'll go away is is always is not always the easiest case to to make and uh, to talk about. And when we talked about the ACA, um, you know, letting folks know, well, with this pre-existing condition, you can actually have coverage for the first time. Um, it, until they actually see it, it doesn't right. actually exist, right. if you know what I mean. And, yeah. and it wasn't going to happen for X number of years. And so all the uh, all the fake talk about death panels and other things was what people were hearing. You saw it at your town hall meeting. Oh, sure. Yeah, I had a, I had an amazing town hall meeting in in Kokomo, Indiana, a, a wonderful place where um, we were. Well, I'll, I'll backtrack for a second. And it was like in July. I, I used to do the Congress. Yeah. On, I used to do the Congress on your corners, 
And so in July, in one of our little towns, we had a Congress on your corner. And I was there for about two hours, and two people showed up at the supermarket. And I was with a buddy of mine, and I said, man, if we don't have more people start coming, I don't know whether it's worth it as opposed to just uh, you know trying to figure out something else. And so fast forward about a month and a half later, I have 800 people in a parking lot in Kokomo, Indiana. It's 100 degrees. We're all in the parking lot because the theater that we got had 200 seats, and by 4 p.m., there were like 300 people outside. So there's about 800 people in the parking lot. It's 100 degrees. You were nostalgic for the two people in the <laughs> The fellow who was with me that day leaned over and said to me, he goes, well, are you happier now? <laughs> you know, um, I know that you have a, a, a child now, an adult, uh, who has a chronic uh, medical uh, condition. How much did that play on your thinking at the time? Well, here's what played on my thinking was... You know, we knew what the prescription costs were for that. It's arthritis. Mm-hmm. Um, rheumatoid arthritis. Right, rheumatoid arthritis. And the prescriptions were 1500 a month at that time. But what we also knew was before that medication was available, um, it was a different medication. And, and it was a real struggle. I mean, it was the most advanced medication out there. But it was clear the situation was going in reverse, as opposed to at least stable. Her medical condition. Her medical condition, Molly. yeah. Uh, and so um, what this new medication did was, was in effect, it, it didn't make it better, but it, it stopped it, uh, more or less. But what I also knew was, this is really, really expensive. And so for that kid in the other house down the block, who has the same exact condition... How on earth is it fair that one kid in our town can be squared away and this other kid would continue to deteriorate? And so from that perspective, I said, this isn't right. That you, depending on what house you're born in, you can get decent medical care or wind up in a wheelchair in 10 years. Something's really um, amiss with that. And I thought that the Affordable Care Act could help change that. And and I will tell you that um, once it went into effect, and we all have stories like this, um, one of the the CEO of of a medical center back home called me up and he said, we have been inundated with terrible heart cases. And he said, we couldn't figure out what it is. So we had a little roundtable like this and had folks from the from the cardiac division and this and that. And when we all, uh, we started talking about why is there something happening in the community, and somebody looked up and said, the Affordable Care Act started a month ago. These people have had these conditions for years, but haven't had the money to get care. And what they were all doing is just like all of us. They had to make decisions whether their daughter was going to go to Ball State or they were going to get medical care. And like every parent, they made the decision that, you know what, I'll keep plugging through this. I am not going to deny my kid a chance. They only had money to do one. And the Affordable Care Act, for the first time, gave them the chance to do both. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Senator Joe Donnelly. You, For all of your good works, you got uh, redistricted. Uh, out of your seat after that very calamitous 
2010 election from the standpoint of Democrats because uh, not everyone survived uh, the, their vote for the Affordable Care Act and, and the wave of uh, right. uh, the Republican wave back in 2010 and, and certainly in your state, the, the, the it gave Republicans absolute ability to redistrict and you were the loser in that and you ran for the Senate in 2012 and you when you announced you ran, you were announcing to run against Richard Luger Dick Luger one of the uh, really major veteran figures in a- the an Senate. American icon uh-huh. he's an extraordinary person who is a mentor to me he was actually one of my heroes and um, y- you know I, I you could tell that there was trouble in the Republican Party um, in, in terms of how they were looking at issues, how they were looking at things with the Tea Party. And um, Senator Luger as had served six terms, was run for president, um, served in the U.S. Navy during World War II. And my expectation was if, if he was a candidate, obviously, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be awful tough. And um, Why'd you run? Because I wasn't certain that he would get the nomination at the end of the day. No, number one, though, was because I thought I, I can I can help my country if I do this, um, or, or at least try to help the country. I don't want to sound uh, uh, like a mini genius or anything, but try to do my best in the U.S. Senate. But but number two was um, my expectation based on what I had seen was that uh, their primary voters were not going to reelect Senator Luger. Not because he had done anything wrong. He was an extraordinary hero. Um, and in, in large measure because he was willing to work with the president, President Obama, who he worked closely with yes. on a number of issues. That he was punished for that as opposed to people saying, it's great that folks in our country can work together. And, and he was punished in the primary for yeah, working you, with you President Obama. Yeah, you turned out to be right in that. And you got a different opponent uh, who kind of imploded uh, – in that race. Uh, now you have six years later uh, uh, another race, and you are, you have to be among the top three uh, Republican targets because Donald Trump carried your state by uh, what, 17 points or something? 19. 19 points, but who's counting? That's right. Uh, and generally, what we've seen is states following the pattern of their presidential votes in, in these. Uh, Senate races, um, how vulnerable do you feel? I don't feel vulnerable at all all because um, I I don't want this to sound naive, but I don't worry about that. What I worry about is trying to do the very best job I can, and my dad always taught me, and he's not here any longer. He says, do your job and everything else takes care of itself. And so... Um, that's what we try to do. Look, I, you know, we have a new veteran center opening in um, near South Bend, Indiana, this month. We've been working on this for ten years now. That um, it, when when Congressman Chicola was first starting, we had a little storefront place for veterans with an eight month wait for health care, and then um, he helped move it to um, a house in, in effect. And then I was able to help pick up the ball and focus like a laser on this. And we were able to get it to a bigger place in South Bend. And now we have 
a um, full health care center, 70,000 square feet, that our veterans, and you know how the winters can be up here, that our veterans are not on in a van that might not make it, on an icy road, on a two-hour ride, whether it's to Heinz here in Chicago or to Fort Wayne. And so those are the things that when I go look at the look the voters in the eye, I said, look, here's what I've delivered. Here's what I've promised. Here's what I've done. And I think that's the best case. And uh, how, how does that stand up against uh, sort of these partisan uh, you know, I think, I think it's I think it stands up fine because part of the um, way I've approached this job as well is that I'm the senator for the people of Indiana. And so I'm on the Ag Committee because 85% of our land is in farmland, and our farmers need somebody to be their voice. I serve on the Armed Services Committee because, you know, number one, I want to keep my country safe, but number two, we have the, as I mentioned before, per capita, the largest National Guard in the country. I want to make sure our men and women, wherever they go, go for the right reasons, that the right decisions are made, that they have everything they need, and... um, that were squared away. And so I've tried to tie my committee work into the needs of the state and the needs of the country. You, um, uh, you mentioned veterans. You worked on, uh, you've worked a lot on the mental health uh, issue. Uh, there's, a, there's been this elevated suicide rate among uh, returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, why? And and, and and why did you get involved in that issue? Because these are our brothers and sisters. These are our husbands and wives. Um, I've met I've met them. Um, when Chuck Hagel was up for Secretary of Defense, um, I was really bothered by the suicide rate in the military. And so I, I asked him, I said, y- 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 you know, uh, Senator... When you take this job, what you're going to find is that we're losing more young men and women to suicide than in combat. And and how do we how how are we going to do this? Are you going to focus on it? And he and he did. Um, but as I as I asked him about that, we got an email from from a fellow who's become a very close friend of mine, Jeff Sexton, and the email was, my son committed suicide while he was home on R&R from Afghanistan. And I want to make sure it doesn't happen to any other kid. So if you're serious about this, let's work together on it to try to change it. And and so he did. His son Jake um, had served in, in, in Afghanistan and was home and was going back and took his life from farmland Indiana. And so I worked with um, Jeff and Barb, the mom and dad, and said this has to end, and and they came to they 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 had no interest in coming to Washington. Uh, their home was Indiana, mm-hmm. working there. He's a truck driver. He drives every day back and forth to Detroit with with parts. And he said, "I'll take a couple days off and and come out and talk to folks." And so we were able to. With his help and with the help of uh, my friends in the Armed Services Committee, uh, Senator McCain, then Senator Levin, um, Senator Reid, and all the others, we were able to pass legislation that said every member of the Armed Services can have a mental health assessment every single year. That the next year, 
we were able to get it passed that um, they can get that mental health assessment right here in Chicago from a local doctor or in Lafayette, Indiana, from a local doctor. The DOD what about ongoing pay. help, though, and support? And that, that's the other part, is that once they get that mental health assessment, that whatever care they need will be there, and that, it, that ongoing help is not only with DOD folks, or I'm sorry, Department of Defense folks, but from local psychiatrists in your hometown, and it's all covered. Let me ask you about the, the situation in Washington uh, today and uh, with, with President Trump. Uh, as we speak, it's been a peculiar week because he sided with your leaders on the Democratic side on uh, the issue of uh, the debt limit, debt ceiling, how to approach it, uh, kind of stunned Republicans and so on. What is the environment now, and uh, do you you consider this a lasting uh, alliance now? Is is Donald Trump going to be the Democratic nominee? uh, (laughs) What's going on there? Not if some of my colleagues have anything to say about it. (laughs) Well, probably a lot of Democratic voters. Right, right. Um, Look, what I always hear when I'm back home is... Just a desire, and we have a saying, who's your common sense? Just a desire to try to get things done. They say, when I'm running my business, even when I'm trying to sell a product to somebody else, we go back and forth on a price. We go back and forth on this or on that. But eventually we come together, and nobody gets 100% of what they want. Everybody gets like 70% of something. And, and, And do the same. And, and we have core principles and core beliefs. Yeah, but that hasn't been yeah. the governing principle in Washington. It has not. And that's, that's what I think you saw this past week. Do you think he helped himself oh, by, yeah. by Absolutely. doing that? I thought that, um, I thought the, that the, the president His base was, is kind of ticked. I thought he was really in a, in a, um, in a tough spot, though, in, in this, that, that the base is, is uh, 30 35%. That's not who America is. America is a place where... There's a desire to get things done and not to constantly drive off the cliff on every single issue where much of his base was going. So how do we get things done? And and I know from my colleagues in the Senate, if something can be brought to the floor, in most cases it's normal, um, you'll get 70 votes, 60 votes. It's it's getting it to the floor. Like The that, reason yesterday's vote got to the floor is because the president said, I want to vote on this. This is the vote on the yeah, debt sorry, ceiling. The yeah, vote on the okay. debt ceiling. Yeah. And... Uh, Gets to the floor, you get 80 votes. Now, do you think the same thing will happen on the DREAM Act for these uh, kids who've now been dis, uh, I are do. threatened with disenfranchisement? I actually do. I, you know, we just have to get this um, to the floor. And I think if you do, my guess, and I, I don't have an exact count, was probably um, in the Senate you'll get at least 70 votes. You'll probably get over 300 in the House um, because it's, it's inherently the American thing to do is to give these kids And the do chance. you think it will get to the floor? I do. Um, I think that uh, there's there's no question that these young people, uh, they are Americans. They came here when they were two, three years old. Um, Their parents brought them here, and they have have lived their entire life here uh, from three years old on or four years old on. And we've heard Speaker Ryan say that and others, and yet— there's been real resistance among the base you spoke of, and right. therefore it it hasn't come to the floor. In fact, it did come to the floor in the Senate 
during the Obama years in 2000. You weren't in the Senate yet, I don't think, at the time of the DREAM Act no, uh, vote. Yeah. But it got 55 yeah. votes in a Senate with uh, you know, 59, I think, Democrats at the time. I, I think now, you know, there's been a few more years of experience on mm-hmm. this as well and, and understanding where this process is, that you, you get 70-plus, like I said, and— uh, um, I, I do believe this will get done because it's so clearly the right thing to do that these kids, you know, I, I have I have folks um, in Indiana who have gone to the local high schools who are at Indiana University or Purdue mm-hmm. University and and say, Joe, how how does how is I've never lived anywhere else. I don't even know where mm-hmm. this country or that country is. I can tell you where Terre Haute and Richmond is, but I can't tell you how to get to these other places. Mm-hmm. I played for the basketball team at Carmel High School. I'm at IU in my third year as, uh, as an engineer. How am I not a credit to my nation? Let me ask you uh, on a, a, a kind of random other issue. You're yeah. on the banking committee. You, met, you voted for the uh, Dodd-Frank uh, financial uh, reform. There seems to be a, a move to unravel as a, a bunch of it, including um, uh, a move to oust the uh, chair of the uh, consu- uh, of the uh, of the, the CFPB, consu- CFPB, the CFPB, Consumer Federation, con- yeah, the Financial Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, Protection Richard Cordray. Uh, what do you make of all of that, and what is uh, what is the future for? Consumers. Well, I think the future the is. I think the future is good for consumers in, in this way, that if there are changes, it would be changes to things like community banks, who were never part of the problem to start with. And the idea for any changes there would be that if they have two or three regulators coming in doing the same thing, um, that one or two might be enough. But it, it would be restricted to primarily but the focus on Cordray and that. Bureau seems to yeah. be... Um, they just don't like them. Right. Uh, I mean, you, you know, they just don't like the presence of it. And my expectation is um, that it will survive. Um, and, and you know, uh, they don't like them, but I, I will say that we have saved a lot of money through the CFPB for a lot of families and, and made sure that a lot of families had, had the opportunity to have... Uh, have more fairness in the game on the financial markets. Just on this issue of of survival, yours, uh, your political survival, uh, you know, there's this debate within the Democratic Party, uh, and you're uh, distinctly on one end of that uh, spectrum. Uh, Your position on, uh, I haven't really explored your position on the issue of uh, abortion and choice, but I assume uh, it's not the the sort of mainstream position in the Democratic Party. Um, well, what I've always believed is, um, you know, I've I've had a pro life position, and I've always believed that where the emphasis should be is on um, how do we make it so that any child who is fortunate enough to be here has a chance to succeed. That they that that life life doesn't once you're here, that's not the end of trying to create success that success is that that child can have the best health care the best education the best opportunities and you know that that's I, I, what we encourage no i understand yeah i mean I, barney frank used to hector uh, yeah. op- opponents of early childhood 
health and <laughs> pre postnatal and all of that by saying life you guys believe that life begins at conception and ends at birth right was yeah. his line but my point is this uh, you know on guns i think you're you're uh, you've had a record that um, you know straddles the line between uh, uh, constituencies right. and you know we're sitting here in the city of chicago where a lot of guns come in from indiana and so on so you you don't pass the purity test uh, when it comes to sort of progressive uh, issues, and there are people who say, um, "Why should we support uh, candidates who who uh, don't uh, don't line up with us on some of these very uh, key issues?" What do you say to them? Well, I say that um, the Democratic Party is a big tent. Um, that whatever their purity test is where they are may not be what the purity test is where I live, that my job is to represent the people of Indiana and not to try to pass some artificial test that makes somebody happy somewhere else. My obligation is to the family in Kokomo and to the family in Richmond and the family in Evansville to get a job for their dad. That's a democratic value. When Franklin Roosevelt looked up, um, he wanted to make sure everybody was working because you know what? We can have all the purity tests we want in the world, but if mom or dad isn't working, that family is in trouble. And so we want good jobs. We want good opportunity. We want to take care of our veterans. We want to take care of our service members. We want to end the opioid scourge. We want to make sure the NIH has the funds they need to cure arthritis, to cure diabetes. Um, I think that's a pretty strong democratic platform. You, I think it's a pretty are, strong American platform. Are you concerned uh, about this sort of debate within the party? There, you know, there, um, the, the, there's uh, a lot been written about the Sandersites, your colleague yeah. Bernie Sanders and his supporters, um, uh, demanding more, demanding uh, uh, uh single payer as a kind of litmus test for supportive candidates and some other issues. Yeah, it really is a it, it is almost like a debate or a world that that uh I'll pass on. And, and what I mean by that is we've got so many things to take care of in this nation right now in terms of job creation, skills training. Uh, David, I have an opioid scourge in my state that is heartbreaking. I went to an event on uh, Monday night, not this past Monday, but the Monday before. Um, it was called the Overdose Lifeline. And the people who were there had lost a son or daughter, brother or sister, and were talking about their loved one. And this young man came up to me, and I know his family. And I know him, and he's like 24, 25 years old. Um, and he came up and gave me a big hug, and he said, it's so awesome to see you. I said, oh, it's great to see you. I didn't know you were going to be here. I said, who are you here for? He said, me. And I had never known. And he said, I've been clean for seven months now. I struggle with this every single day. I am trying to hang on. My mom, who you know, is here with me. He said, this is my fight right now. So, I mean, that's my fight. When, when, when we have these uh, fights about particular strains of purity in the party is like, you know what? Um, I can't worry about um, who's pure enough. We've got things we actually have to do. Senator Joe Donnelly, it's always great to see you. Boy, the time went fast. It did. Yes, yeah. it did. Well, we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you great very to much. See you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.